0: At Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to read this whole passage, this whole chapter. This is God's Word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him again and ask him for his help. Gracious God, we, we come to you and ask uh, for help, Lord. We, we know that we are, uh, are, are, are sinful people that we are people of unclean lips and unclean minds and unclean hearts. And so we ask that you would guide us, that you would lead us, that you would teach us. Lord, we ask that the meditations of our hearts this morning would be pleasing to you, and the words of my mouth would be pleasing as well. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, one of the strangest novels I- I've ever read is a book called Infinite Jest. Um, and I, I'm not necessarily recommending this book to you. It's it's a, a slog to get through. First of all, it's this thousand page like postmodern novel, and I think the only reason I read it to finish it what, finished it was just so I could say I finished it. Look how smart I am. Look how cool I am. Um, and so, but it's it's a very strange novel, and I want to tell you just a little bit about it this morning. Um, it, was, it was written in the mid '90s, and and the, most of the action of this book takes place like at a tennis academy and a sort of rehab halfway house that are right next door to each other in Boston. And there's so some of the stories taking place, you know, with sports and then there's these sort of uh, former drug addicts. And then there's um, there's this videotape that if you it's so entertaining that if people watch it, it, it they sort of go catatonic and they die from watching this. Really, you know, they die of entertainment from this watching this video. Yeah, it's a really weird book. Um, and you know, there's these, uh, there's these, you know, French Canadian, you know, wheelchair assassins who are trying to overthrow the government, U.S. government. It, it's very bizarre. But, um, but what's most fascinating to me about this book, throughout all the weirdness, right, throughout their, their sports and, and entertainment and politics and, and you know, uh, recovering drug addicts and stuff. One of the themes of this book is actually worship. Um, and the, I'm not sure the author was a man named David Foster Wallace. I don't believe he was he was a Christian. Um, but but what's interesting to me how close I think he gets to get grasping a picture of what worship is according to the Bible um, because he, there's this one exchange there's these two characters who are like standing on this mountain sort of talking the whole the whole book and they're sort of you know they're sort of above the all the other action it's kind of I think helping explain what what maybe is going on there's two these two characters and I want to sort of paraphrase their little conversation they have one character the first character's is named Remy he says. He says this. He says, everyone has something that they would die for without thinking twice. And that choice, whatever that, whatever that thing is in their life, that choice determines everything else in their lives. He says, um, this thing is their temple. This thing that they choose, which, which they would die without thinking twice about, this is their temple. And this other character named Hugh, he says, you know, I don't, I don't believe that. He says, I don't have a temple. I've, I don't, I've never made a conscious decision to worship anything. Um, I just, I do the things that I desire to do. I just do what I want to do. I don't make, I don't make decisions like that. Um, He says, I don't have a temple. I don't worship anything. And Rumi says this, and this is what's fascinating to me. He says, then you are a fanatic of desire. You are a slave to yourself. You are by yourself and alone, kneeling to yourself. You become a slave who believes he is free. And I just thought, how amazing is that? That this book, this bizarre book with all these weird things in it, that that he has this picture of worship where we, we wrap our lives around something. And this thing is, is sort of what defines everything else that we do and believe. Um, and that if we say, well, I'm, I'm not, I haven't chosen anything. That we we're, Our sort of default setting is that we're going to just worship ourselves, that we're going to turn that worship inward, um, that we're going to be worshippers worshipers. Of ourself and so that, that I think is astonishingly close to what we see in the scriptures in the Bible that first and foremost God has designed us to be worshipers he has designed us to worship he's designed us to worship him um, and worship is not merely something that we do you know the 30 minutes before the preaching on Sundays but worship is a way of life worship is is something that sort of you know bleeds into everything that we do uh, worship is like I said when you, when you sort of wrap your life around something when you find this thing that that you get your identity from, that you get your security, your comfort, your joy, uh, wherever you're seeking all those things, uh, that that is what you're worshiping, where you where you give your time and your energy and your money and your thoughts. You know, these are ways that, that we worship um, each and every day, each and every minute of the day. Now, the problem with worship is that the fall has happened, right? And so uh, no longer, we were, Adam and Eve were created just to worship God, but now our hearts are sort of being wooed to worship God. All sorts of things, every single day. Um, sort of like, the, like there's a there's a siren song from, coming from all directions, um, asking us to worship, asking us to build our lives on things other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look through the Bible, this is a huge a huge theme. You know, when and when we love, trust, or obey something more than we love, trust, and obey Jesus, um, we're worshiping wrongly, right? We're committing idolatry. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but typically when I hear the word idolatry, I, I still think of sort of the ancient world and, and people's there were little golden dolls or wooden dolls and they kind of bow down. Yeah, that's kind of what I picture with idolatry. But, but idolatry is still a very real sin today. Um, if anything, it, it's maybe more dangerous today because it's more subtle, right? Because we don't, we don't have the little uh, wooden statue in our house that we bow down to. Uh, but idolatry now occurs, you know, it, it's something that we have taken in our lives and our hearts um, you know, you and I could be sitting together at lunch and having a conversation, and I could be committing idolatry in my heart, and, and you could have no idea. Um, and what's even scarier is that I could have no idea. Um, it's something that's very subtle. Um, and so it's something I think is, is worth us thinking about and, and talking about um, because I think if we're, if we're really, if we dig deep enough into our hearts each and every day, we would see that a lot of the choices that we make, a lot of the decisions that we, that we make, a lot of the things that we say and do are, are motivated by worship. Uh, Whether worship of God or worship of ourselves or worship of some idol. I think a lot of our decisions, a lot of things we do are motivated somehow by worship. So in our passage this morning, we see sort of a war of worship, right? We see a war of worship, uh, worship, worshiping God versus worshiping idols. And so we're going to do something a little unusual maybe. We're going to move this passage backwards today. We're going to look at the second half and then we're going to look at the first half. But I want us to see today the consequences of idol worship and the blessings of true worship and how each one of those affects us. So first we see the consequences of idol worship. Uh, we see this in the second half of, of this section. As you know, this, this chapter, this passage, is, this is sort of Isaiah's commission from God. This is kind of his, he's, God is, is calling him and sending him out with this message. And the message that God is sending him out to, Israel, to the people of Israel with is not uh, necessarily a happy one. It's a message of judgment. And we see that in verse 9. We read, and he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. And so the first question we maybe want to ask is okay, where is there any talk of worship in here? Where is there any mention of idols? Um, where, do, where do we get that? Well, typically, when this sort of language is used, where we have the, the eyes, you know, eyes but, but uh, not being able to see, and ears but not being able to hear. In the scriptures, in the Old Testament, that is almost always uh, has to do with idolatry. And actually, if you'll, if you'll look with me, uh, well, if you, we can see that. We won't turn there now, but we can see that in Isaiah chapter 44. And we see it in other places of Isaiah as well, uh, where we the same sort of refrain, you know, having eyes but not being able to see, having ears but not being able to hear. Uh, we see that, but we also see that in, in our unison reading this morning from Psalm 115. If you'll grab your little, your little sheet, and we can look at that in just a moment. Um, we see in here th- this refrain, um, starting about close to you know a third of the way down the page. We see that um, the nations have have their idols, and they say their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, and feet but do not walk, and that do not make do not make a sound in their throat, and so. You know, what we're what is being pictured here is like a little golden statue or a little wooden statue, right? Where there's, there's eyes carved out, there's ears carved out, but there's no ability for this object to hear or see. And look at the very next verse that, that we see. It says that those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And so there's this sense in which when we worship idols, um, that we start to, this, this seeing but not being able to perceive, this hearing having ears but not being able to hear. This becomes true of us as well. And so I think that uh, what we see in, in verse 9, what we see here is is, is God basically saying, look, these people are, are committing idolatry. Um, and go to them and say, keep on hearing but do not perceive. Keep on seeing, or keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. That they are already engaged in this idol worship. They are already engaged in giving themselves over to idols um, in their land and in their culture. And so it's as if... Uh, God is saying to to um, to Isaiah, say, your message is to say, look, if, if you want your idols so badly, then I will give you to your idols. I will give you over to them. I will make you like them. That, that is what, essentially, Isaiah's message is. It's a, it's a message of judgment. Isaiah's preaching somehow is going to function as pushing them further towards what they crave so much, the, these idols, and making them look and, and act like these idols. Um, now, we know that as we saw at the very beginning of this passage, that this this is taking place in the year that King Uzziah died. Um, and King Uzziah, if you read in Second Chronicles 26, you can see that King Uzziah's reign was a time of great prosperity for Israel. It was a very good time. The economy was booming. Um, and so we're coming here at the very end of this. Um, and I think that's a good, a good point for us as well, that often it's when things are going really well, right? Whenever we're, whenever, uh, when we're in times of plenty, that's when the... the um, temptation to make idols in our hearts. That's when the temptation to worship idols, I think, is more felt and more real, right? When things are going really well, when we're, when we're prospering, um, those, we, we kind of forget our neediness, we forget our weakness, and we begin to turn our hearts towards other things. So the very first consequence that we see of idol worship is that it dulls our spiritual senses. Uh, it makes our hearts dull, I love the the literal Hebrew translation of that verse. Make the heart of this people dull. Um, the literal Hebrew says, "Make the heart of this people fat." Um, I think that's what the King James says as well. And there's a sense of like you sort of picture a heart that's sort of just covered in fat, um, and that it's it's not it is no longer sensitive. It can no longer feel uh, anything, right? It, it is sort of uh, sort of um, insulated from any sort of feeling. He also says that uh, we are to make. The the idol worship, it says, makes their ears heavy, um, that they can't hear, they can't perceive spiritual truth. And finally, it blinds the eyes. And the Hebrew here is also kind of very, um, has a very interesting picture with it. When it says, shuts their eyes or blinds their eyes, the Hebrew indicates that it's, it's like a, there's like a paste or a glue. And the idea is like smearing that over their eyes and so that it dries and it's, and their eyes are shut. And their eyes, they cannot perceive, they cannot see. Um... And so, uh, so we see that worship, the worship of idols, it, it dulls our spiritual senses. It, it, it leads us to be, to be blind and deaf and have um, fattened or, or hardened hearts. You know, perhaps if you've, done, if you've ever done a lot of yard work, um, you know, my dad owns a lawn service. I've mentioned that a bunch of times up here. Um, you know, so, I, so throughout my youth, I almost always had these, like, thick calluses on my hands. Um, now that I do the work of ministry, I don't have calluses anymore. But, but uh, I used to have these thick calluses all over my hands. And, I mean, I could take like a, like a little small like sewing needle and, and kind of poke on these calluses, and I didn't, I didn't feel a thing. You know, if you've played guitar or violin or some stringed instrument, you know, you get little uh, calluses on your fingertips, and you can't, the sensation is sort of dulled. And that's kind of what happens to our hearts and our souls um, when we worship idol, the, idols. The, the, the prick of our conscience, um, we, we no longer feel that. Uh, the nudges from the Holy Spirit, those things are harder to feel. It's a very dangerous place to be. The second consequence that we see of idol worship is that it leads to destruction. And we see that in verses 11 through 13. i want to read that again for us. And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So God is sort of painting this picture of, of, of the future of Israel, of a land that has been conquered, a land that has been, uh, the people have been exiled, the people have been carried away and removed. And we know this eventually happens with Israel um, as the nation of Assyria comes in and conquers them and takes their people away. You know, if you've ever driven through, whenever I read this passage, the picture that comes to my mind. If you've ever driven through a countryside or something right after a tornado, a bad tornado, or, or perhaps after you, know, you guys are down here and, uh, you know, close to hurricanes and stuff, maybe after a hurricane or something, you drive through a land sometimes, and, and you see sort of a, a desolate wasteland almost. You know, I remember one time when I was a teenager, we had some really bad storms come through West Tennessee, and I was driving through this little town called Bradford, uh, which is near my hometown of Martin, and I remember driving through, and there was this one, sort of this, like, little alleyway. It almost seemed like where this tornado had just come right through. And, and the trees were just stripped and barren um, and twisted and mangled. And, and houses were just demolished or, or, you know, significantly severely damaged. And then this, the strangest sight I saw in this, in this sort of aftermath was a trampoline, a full-size trampoline, that had been picked up and, like, put into a tree and, like, wrapped around the tree, um, and it was there. It took them a long time to get it down because you would drive, you know, we would drive past Bradford every now and then. And this, this house was around the highway, and you'd drive past for like the next month or so, and this, this trampoline was still kind of up in the tree, sort of wrapped around it. And so that, that's sort of the picture that I get when I read this passage, you know, of, of this sort of barren, desolate, conquered land. And, and I, idols do great damage to us today as well because they demand so much and they give us so little, they give us nothing in return. We give and give and give to our idols um, and uh, until we're empty. Um, but our, the idol is not satisfied, and the idol, idol gives nothing to us in return. You see, the problem with idolatry, one of the many problems, is that it promises us something, uh, but that it doesn't deliver. It promises satisfaction and joy. It promises comfort. Um, it promises security and identity. Um, but these are things we can only find in God. And so when we end up seeking these things, in, in other stuff. When we end up seeking these things in other places, uh, we only come up empty-handed and heartbroken. You know, for instance, if, you, if a person were to turn like, their appearance or something into an idol, you know, and they devote hours and, and money and time and energy into, into looking good, you know, having the best clothes and, and going to the gym uh, every single day, if, if they devote their time to, to making this, uh, if, to worshipping this thing, worshipping their appearance, And they will always feel ugly. That is a guarantee. They will never feel like they've arrived. They will never feel like they've made it. Um, But their idol will continue to drain them. Um, Or if a person uh, is to turn power into some sort of an idol, whether it's power in the home or power at work or power in any kind of uh, context, they're always going to feel weak. They'll never feel like they've arrived. Uh, You know, there was a very telling quote, I think, from the multi-billionaire John D. Rockefeller because um, we can do this with money as well. And someone asked John D. Rockefeller, you know, billions and billions of dollars. And someone said, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar is enough. Uh, that's what idolatry looks like and sounds like. It's never satisfied. You know, and, and it's, it's what's really interesting is that we often turn good things into idols. It's often the good stuff, right? Um, you know money's a good thing it's not it's not a bad thing we uh, work is a good thing um, and we turn these things into idols. I recently just read a book on pastoral ministry, and if I had to th- th- sum up one of the themes of this book, it would be um, don't let the ministry become an idol don't find your your security and your identity and your comfort in your ministry, but find it in Jesus so we ministers that's a very strong i think temptation often is to find our our satisfaction to find our identity and our comfort in in this, um, instead of in Jesus. And so, another thing that we could do this with is, is our children. You know, we are a, a very pro-family church, right? I, lo- I love that about North Point. We, we love families. We're very big on families. And so we have to admit that this could be a temptation for us um, to turn, you know, to, to wrap our whole lives around this idea of a perfect little family, of a perfect little children, um, and... and to turn our, our whole lives kind of on this idea, to wrap it around that. Because um, usually when we, when we turn our children into idols, it usually looks like one of two things. Either we sort of let them get away with murder, we let them sort of trample all over us, they don't appreciate us, they, they don't care about us. Or the other side of the extreme is um, we expect and demand perfection from them. And we just push them and push them um, until there's bitterness, until there's anger in their hearts. Um, And so usually when we turn our children into idols, it it takes one of those two paths. But it still pushes us away from what we wanted, which is to have loving children and to to have a good relationship with our children. And that's the thing about idolatry is that the the quickest way to push something away from yourself, the quickest way to stop getting satisfaction from something, to stop getting joy in something, is to start worshiping it, to make it into an idol. Um, you know, uh, there's a movie that came out like 10 years ago called The Bourne Identity. I don't know if you're familiar with this movie, but there's this spy guy named Jason Bourne. And he's, you know, he has amnesia, so he doesn't remember everything. But his, his old spy agency is trying to track him down and, and wipe him out. Um, and I've, I've, I'm fuzzy on the details, to be honest with you. I can't remember why. But uh, so anyways, one of the greatest scenes to me in the movie is he's out. He's hiding out in this, uh, this, this farmhouse in the French countryside. And, you know, it's this really tense scene because suddenly they realize, like, the dog's gone or something. You know, where's the dog? And so it's Jason Bourne, his, his you know, spy instincts kick in. He says, oh, no, someone's here to get me. Someone's here to, to, to kill me. And so he, he, you know, hides the people, and he he goes out on the search for this guy. And it turns out that it's one of his old colleagues that, you know, this organization they used to work for, they want to kill him. And they've sent one of his old colleagues, a man that they, they call the professor, uh, they've sent the professor out to kill him, all right? And there's this great sort of, you know, cat and mouse. They're trying to find each other out in, this, in the woods and everything. Well, anyways, eventually Jason Bourne, he's the hero. So eventually he finds the professor and he shoots him. But before, he, before the professor dies, Jason Bourne's like interrogating him. He's asking him questions and he finds out, hey, we, used, you know, we were former colleagues and I was sent here to, to kill you. And, uh, but the last thing that the professor says before he dies is this. It's always stuck in my memory. He says, look at what they make you give. Look at what they make you give he's talking about this organization that they work for that they, they take everything. He's like this organization, they're sort of, you know, you always get the sense that this is like a nefarious kind of evil organization or something, but he says they take, they take it all. They take everything. Look at what they make you give, and what do you get in return? And that is exactly what the idols in our hearts do. Look at what they make you give. They make you give everything, and they give nothing in return. Um, you know, one last thing I'll say about idolatry is this, and this is actually, I'm not going to take credit for this. this was, we've been, as I said, we've been going over this in our Sunday school class. And one of the people in our Sunday school class pointed this out, that often the things that we're most tempted to worship as idols in our hearts are the things that people praise us for the most. The things that people come up to us and admire us for and praise us for, those are the things often that we're tempted to turn into idols. You know, Whether it be work you know, someone says, look at this guy. He's the first one there. He's the last one to leave every day. What a hard worker. Hard work is a good thing, obviously, but not if you are sacrificing your family on the altar of your job um, or parenting. You know, we, we admire people for being devoted parents, and yet um, parenting is a wonderful thing. I'm not trashing work or parenting, of course. These are wonderful gifts from God. But my point is this, that often it's the greatest gifts that God gives us. It's these good, good things that we have in life that we are tempted to turn, uh, to, to turn into idols, to turn into gods. So what do we do? What, what, what is, how do we guard our hearts against idolatry? How do we, how do we fight against this? What do we do? Well, there, there's two, just two things I want to mention this morning. Sometimes God will take care of that problem for us. And God will send us through periods of suffering. Um, send us through uh, the desert, so to speak. And we see this throughout the Old Testament, right? We see this throughout the Bible, um, how God often will send his people. Um, he'll, he'll send them into the desert. He'll send them into the wilderness. He'll punish them. Um, for for their idolatry, for their sin. Um, actually, speaking of this, by Faith magazine, uh, I was just kind of skimming through this morning. I found this quote, like per- perfectly fits with this. So I just want to read this to you guys. Um, here's something that Paul Miller said as he's in this interview. He says, "Deserts." He's talking about this idea of, of kind of being sent to the desert by God. Deserts are God's best gift to us. A desert is something painful that won't go away and doesn't have an exit. Deserts strip you of human pretension. They are God's answer to the idol factory in every human heart. They are idol destroyers because you have no life in the desert. And so sometimes God will, will send, as, as strange as this may sound, sometimes God will send us through periods of suffering. Through, he'll send us to the desert. Um, and the reason is he's, he's trying to break our addiction. He's trying to break our love, our worship for these idols and help us to see our dependence and our need for him. And so I would encourage us all, whenever you go through periods of suffering, um, to look closely at it. Um, Perhaps God is trying to weaken your heart's connection to some idol in your life. The second thing, how do do we guard our hearts against idol worship? The second way is to fill our hearts with the true worship of the living God. To fill our hearts with the true worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, This is why it's important to see worship as not merely something we do on Sunday mornings for 30 minutes, but as a way of life. Uh, Because if you see your work as a part of your worship to God, if you say, I'm going to go to work today and I'm going to worship God while I'm at work, then you're less likely to turn your work into an idol. If you see your children um, as, and your parenting as a way for you to honor God, to worship God, I'm going to worship God today by parenting my children. If you do that, you're less likely to turn your children um, into idols. And that goes for all these good gifts that God has given to us. If you see them as a part of your worship, then you are much less likely to uh, to turn them into idols. So very quickly now we, we've seen the, the consequences of idol worship very quickly I want us to see the blessings of true worship uh, we see that in the first half of the passage with Isaiah and we see this very memorable this memorable image right that Isaiah he sees the Lord on his temple and, and you know there's smoke and, and his, his, there's angels that are singing and they're covering their faces they can't even look upon a God because he's so holy uh, we see that the, the, his robes fill the entire room um, it's this amazing, you know, kind of uh, breathtaking scene, right? Um, and can you imagine what a sight like that would do to a person? Uh, you know, I was, recently, uh, I was recently reading this article about, um, about this, this young man who was, he was kind of floundering in college. He wasn't sure of himself, wasn't sure what to do. So he kind of quit school. This was years ago, by the way. He quit school. He went home to Nashville, Tennessee, decided to work in his parents' uh, bookstore. And he said one day he's working in the bookstore and in walks Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash walks in this bookstore, and he says that he, he looks up, and he was just, like, you know stunned to see Johnny Cash in front of him. And I love this. The, Johnny Cash says, like, the most Johnny Cash thing I could ever imagine him saying. He says, son, where are your books on trains? Um, now I just, like, pictured Johnny Cash, like, reading books on trains all the time. And so, uh, you know, the guy says, he says, I couldn't even look him in the eye. I, I was, just like, stammering, and, and, and so I showed him the books, and he looked around for a while, and he bought a bunch of books and left. And the guy says that, you know, this was like a really sort of formational moment for him in his life, as odd as it may sound. And here's what he says at the end of this article. Um, He says, I've met a president and two two Nobel Prize winners, and I've met Michael Jordan and Shaquille O'Neal. And yet I have never been with such a presence as Johnny Cash, before or since. It occurs to me that it may be because I was entering manhood. I was so terribly unsure of myself. I was a wavering presence casting a shadow upon a man whose sense of self was solid as a block of stone. And so it's like he he sees Johnny Cash, and suddenly he sees a man who's confident and and comfortable in his own skin, and he's suddenly so aware of his own insecurities, suddenly so aware of his own um, instability, right? And that's what we see happening to Isaiah here, except on an infinitely greater degree, that he sees the Holy One of Israel. He sees God, and he is immediately convicted and struck By his sin. We see him confess in in verse five, he says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so his first reaction, sort of seeing the holiness of God, is to see. His sin to, to confess his sin, um, we get a sense that perhaps Isaiah feels like he 's about to be struck down here, that he feels that he's gonna he 's going to die because he 's a sinful person in the presence of God, and so just as idol worship sort of dulls our spiritual senses, true worship of God sort of sharpens them we 're able to see ourselves more clearly because we 're seeing ourselves in the light of god 's holiness we 're able to see the, these sins that had had once sort of uh, we'd never noticed because we are seeing them with the right perspective, the right eyes. That's the first blessing of true worship. And um, the second blessing of true worship is that that God is making us more like Him whenever we worship Him. Um, God is making His worshipers more like Him. and We see that in verse 6 and 7. Look with me there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched my mouth. He says, Behold, this has... I'm sorry. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is away, taken away, and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah doesn't do anything to atone for his sin, but God himself is the one who takes care of it. God himself is the one who comes to Isaiah and, and cleanses him and makes him holy and atones for his sin. It's nothing that Isaiah had done, but it was through the blood of the Messiah who is yet to come, the blood of the suffering servant that Isaiah is going to prophesy about in chapter 53. Um, that is how he is, he, he is cleansed. You know, and I think it's interesting to me that the very place that the coal is placed is his lips, which is where he had been convicted of his sin. And so I think often uh, we, we have this sin in our lives that we feel is too dark, it is too deep, it is too filthy um, for God to forgive us, for God to wash away the guilt. Um, and yet here, And yet here we see that um, the angel goes right for that place, in Isaiah, right for his lips. And so we have to remember that our sin is great, that's true, but our Savior is even greater. So just to wrap up, what we've seen in this passage today is essentially this. We've seen uh, that we were created to be worshipers. We were created to worship. And yet this part of us that that desires to worship is broken. And that we are constantly being wooed and being uh, driven to worship other things. We're constantly tempted to worship anything else at times other than God. And the warning of idolatry is this, that... uh, the thing that you worship, you will become like that thing. That it will deaden your spiritual senses. Um, it will dull them. It will demand everything from you. It will give you nothing. And ultimately, our idolatry will, will destroy us. But the promise of worshiping God is the exact opposite. It will awaken our spiritual senses. It will help us to truly see ourselves and to see the holy God um, who's making us more like himself every day. He's, making, he's conforming us in the image of his son as we read in the New Testament. Um, and this promise is not just something that existed long ago. This is a promise for us as well today. Um, if you just grab your bulletin, look at the very front verse, the very front page. Uh, we read this. The Apostle John wrote, wrote these words, referring to uh, Christ's second coming. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because he will, we will see him as he is. There's this beautiful promise for us that when Christ appears, when he returns... That we will see him in the flesh. We will see him as he is. And we will be like him. And so this week, let us fight against the idols in our hearts. Clinging to this promise that God has extended to us. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us and your love for us. Lord, that even though we are so tempted to worship idols, that you are patient with us. You are gracious towards us. So Lord, I pray for all of us. That you would convict us. That you would show us the idols of our hearts that you would uh, drive us into the desert if necessary to break our our affection and our addiction to these things. And let us again, uh, Lord, uh, live lives that are marked by true worship of you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.